Psalm 69 today, which is one of the 150 psalms that are recorded for us in God's word. So psalms, as you know, are simply songs or poems that were often written to be sung along with music. And uh, a lot of them are songs that were written by people who were wrestling with problems or coming out of intensely personal or difficult situations. And they were often lamenting or even sometimes sounding like they were complaining about the situations they had been in. Essentially, these were people like us, going through issues like us, and often more intensely and acutely than anything I personally have ever faced or had to deal with. So they were written honestly and openly, and through the experience of these individual people, both in joy and in sorrow. But eventually they were all put together with all the other different types of Psalms into a single collection that were used by the Jewish people in worship together. Of course, they're also recorded for us today in God's word. They're there for us to listen to, for us to empathize with what people were going through, and they're there for us to learn from. And that's what we want to do for these few minutes today and beyond as well. We're going to be looking at a Psalm of David, the King of Israel, and he wrote at least half of the Psalms that are recorded for us. And we're looking at the Messianic Psalms, as they're called, because these are Psalms that speak to us about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah that the Jews were promised and were waiting for. David was anointed to be the king of Israel after Saul, and Messiah means anointed one. And as we know, the Jews in the time of Jesus were expecting an ultimate king to come and save them, to come in glory and to deliver them from the Romans. Uh, the whole Old Testament of the Bible, as inspired by God, was written by many different people, as we know, over many hundreds of years. And there's over 300 specific predictions or prophecies about the Messiah to come in the Old Testament. And they are all fulfilled in the life, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Uh, and of these 300 or so prophecies, many occur in the book of Psalms. Uh, and there's several in the Psalm that we're going to read in a moment or two now. Jesus is the word of God, and he is a theme that goes all the way through the whole of God's word. And as we see the unfurling of the history of humanity, we can see God's eternal plan of salvation for us. And that's what we're going to be thinking about in our psalm today. So out of these collection of 150 psalms, there's several of these that are quoted in 11 different books in the New Testament. Jesus himself quoted from some of these psalms. And that's recorded for us in the Gospels, so we can be sure that they really do apply to him. And we can study and learn from them on that basis with the help of the Holy Spirit. So as we read our psalm together now, Psalm 69, let's first remember that it was written by King David. So in the first instance, it speaks to us of his experience and what he was going through. It is without doubt a messianic psalm, uh, because it's quoted in a number of, of New Testament books. But it's also clear that not all of this psalm applies directly to the life or the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we take time to read it together now, you can already start to think for yourself of how you might uh, divide it or consider it and break it down. After we read it, we're going to look firstly at the experience of David with a, a brief overview of the psalm, before secondly looking at which parts are specifically quoted in the New Testament and perhaps think why they are. So let's also remember that the Lord Jesus 
is the son of David. And what happened to David as God's royal anointed one is a foreshadowing of the final and ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take the time and read the whole psalm together now, Psalm 69. And it's, the title of it is To the Choir Master, According to Lilies, the same tune as we, as we had our, in our psalm last week, Psalm 45, and it's of David. Verse 1 says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonour through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonour has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonour. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They give me poison for food, and for my, for my thirst, they give me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with the song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. 
Let earth and heaven praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. As you know, many of David's Psalms were written during or after times of immediate physical danger that he faced from his enemies. And you can think of his time on the run from Saul, hiding in caves, betrayed by his own family, and on and on. This Psalm, however, deals with the more slippery, the lies and the slanders that David faced. Read about those in verses one to three. And he goes on to, to tell us all that that incurred on his own mental health, as it were and how it impacted on his service, his testimony for God and his kingdom. In verse four, David says that these accusations that are made against him are false. He says there's no way that he can give back what he didn't take in the first place. How can he refute them? Importantly, he also admits that he's not perfect. In verse five, in another version, the NLT, it says, Oh God, you know how foolish I am. My sins cannot be hidden from you. And in verse six, he goes on to say that his concern is that other people might be affected by this. They might be ashamed or dishonored by these false accusations against him. In other words, he's not just thinking of his own reputation, but is aware that his prominent testimony as king has an impact on others. He cares for others because he cares for his God. And he goes on to explain in the next few verses that he's carrying these criticisms, the disdain and the mocking for the sake of the God he loves. He's alienated from his own family, but he's consumed with love and enthusiasm and zeal for God's house. He's desiring to observe God's priorities and plans through his life. And we know of his longstanding desire to build a house for God. And in the rest of this psalm, he prays for deliverance. He asks for judgment against his enemies. And finally, he looks forward to a future joy with a sure hope. So when he tries to live a righteous life, he is accused of being self-righteous by those that hate him. And that can happen to us as Christians today too, can't it? If we have to bear mocking, we should do it for accusations that are false rather than true, and we should do it if we have to, for the sake of the God that we love. Verse 13 is a key text to me in this, I think. And there's three points there I'd like to, to briefly bring out. Firstly, David prays, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. But as for me, my prayer is, for, is to you. And that reminds me of the Puritans and the concept that they had of living before an audience of one. Only what matters is what God sees and what God knows in our hearts, our motives and our thoughts. Secondly, he's asking for an answer at an acceptable time. And that's not when necessarily he wants it as soon as possible, but he appreciates that it's a time that's acceptable to God in his plans. And thirdly, he says, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. So altogether, those three things show us that in David's mind and heart, 
there's an acceptance, an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, his goodness and his timing. So throughout David's experience, we can see comparisons with the life of the Lord Jesus, can't we? But we can also see some clear contrasts. David was a great man, a great king, who loved God with all his heart. But by his own admission here, and of course in many other of the Psalms he wrote, he acknowledges he isn't perfect and neither are we. He was a person like us who sometimes did the wrong thing, who struggled and had to deal with the consequences. The Lord Jesus was also falsely accused like David. However, he is the only man who's ever lived that could claim to be perfect, to be free from any sin or wrongdoing. Yet because of his love for us, the Lord Jesus was willing to suffer in our place. And in fact, because he was free from all sin, he alone was able to die in our place to rescue us and redeem us. Jesus is David's son and he's David's Lord. He is the Messiah fulfilling God's eternal plan of salvation for us. So with that overview and context, let's think about how this psalm is referenced directly and indirectly a number of times in the New Testament. One of these verses, verse 25, is quoted in the book of Acts 1 and 20, but it refers to Judas, uh, and we won't have time to, to look at that today. But we are going to look at the other references briefly in chronological order in New Testament writing terms. So in that order, the first quotation we're going to look at uh, that's mentioned in the New Testament is from verse 9 of Psalm 69. Verse 9 occurs in John chapter 2. So that's near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it's when he's clearing the temple, he's cleansing the temple of the people and the businesses that just simply shouldn't have been there. And as he told those who sold the pigeons, Jesus said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And John records, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's interesting that the disciples were so saturated in the Psalms. They knew these songs off by heart. And this incident that occurred struck a chord with them so that through the Holy Spirit, this was brought to their minds and it's recorded in the Gospels for our benefit today. So we can clearly see uh, David's enthusiasm for God's house in that Psalm resonating, foreshadowing the even greater zeal that the Lord Jesus, his descendant and his Lord would display while he was on earth. And as for us, we can try and understand what this means and enthusiasm for God's house. We can seek to follow in the examples of David and more so of the Lord Jesus with a love for God and his house. And that reminds me of, of a couple of verses we've read towards the end of Psalm 69 um, from verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. The second quotation we're going to look at is from verse four of Psalm 69. And that's referenced in John chapter 15, verses 23 to 25, which I'll read to you in a second. And this is the Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples in the upper room uh, in the night before his, uh, he was taken to be crucified. And 
Jesus says this in John 15 and 23. Again, this is from the ESV. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Again, the disciples knew God's word. And more than that, the Lord Jesus knew it all. And he fulfilled it all perfectly at the right time. Luke 24 and 44 has been the key verse for this series of talks on the Messianic Psalms. And it tells us that later on, after his resurrection, Jesus said to the disciples this. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And it goes on. So we see again and again the Lord Jesus perfectly fulfilling God's word and the plan of salvation for us. The third quotation we're going to look at is from verse 21 of Psalm 69. And I'll just read um, a little bit of that for context again. From halfway through verse 20, it says, I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They give me poison for food and for my, first, for my thirst, they give me sour wine to drink. Although this verse isn't expressly quoted, it's certainly referred to by John. Uh, and let's read together John 19, verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's amazing to me that this small part of the psalm that we're looking at today now becomes a significant act in the greatest moment, the pivotal moment of all history. Some of these hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament that I've mentioned were explicit. They had to happen, like Jesus being born in Bethlehem, for example. But if Jesus hadn't fulfilled this one, I don't think we would have known at all that it was a prophecy. Maybe like me, you wonder at the significance of this. Is it something that was metaphorical for David in his experience, but now was shown to be physically completed? by the experience and suffering of the Lord Jesus? Does it remind us of his humanity again, that he says, I thirst at the end of his time of suffering on the cross? Well, what we do know is that the end of his hours of agony, the inestimable suffering that he took for us on the cross, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he was still conscious of the need to fulfill this last scripture, this verse from this psalm from the Old Testament. It is finished. Not, not just the completion of this prophecy, but the completion of his entire work on the cross in obedience to his Father and because of his love for you and for me. There's two more verses I want to look at. 
Um, the, the penultimate one is verses 22 and 23 of Psalm 69. Uh, and these are verses that are quoted by Paul in his letter to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 11. And in this psalm that we've read, David uses some very strong words, doesn't he? In asking God to judge, to condemn, and to destroy his enemies. Sometimes Christians might find language like this from the Old Testament uncomfortable when they compare it to the message that Jesus brings, loving your enemies, uh, and for example, the Sermon on the Mount in particular. I find um, a John Piper essay on this to be helpful for me. And so rather than butcher it and try and summarize it, I'd just like to quote a few lines from it uh, to explain. John Piper says, so how does the New Testament deal with this psalm? It never treats the psalm as something we should reject or leave behind. It never treats the psalm as sinful personal vengeance from David. In Romans 11, Paul teaches that most of Israel had rejected Jesus as her Messiah and has therefore come under God's judgment. One of the main teachings of Paul here is that God is judging Israel with this hardening until God's full appointed number of the Gentiles, us, are saved. The way Paul interprets the words of David here is not as sinful personal vengeance, but as a reliable expression of what happens to the adversaries of God's anointed. David is God's anointed king, and he is being rejected and reproached and reviled. These are the prophetic words of judgment by God's inspired spokesman on the adversaries of God's anointed. So again, it looks forward to the adversaries, the enemies of the Lord Jesus, including Jesus in this context. And it shows us the wider scope and span of God's plan. And it illuminates these sobering words of David and puts them into a greater perspective for us, I think. So we're going through these quite quickly, but the last one to look at, uh, to bring us to a close on this psalm, is a verse we've already looked at, verse nine from Psalm 69, because it's quoted twice. It's quoted in uh, the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans as well, uh, in Romans chapter 15 and verse three by Paul. So we've been trying to consider the significance, the, the meaning of these messianic psalms, this one in particular, and the fulfillment of all of these prophecies that were written across hundreds of years in the Old Testament. In the verses that we've read, and in the verses we'll read now from Romans 15, we see the fulfillment, the completion of David's words as Christ endured the reproaches of men, all the disappointment, the criticisms, the mocking, the rebukes that he faced willingly for us. So Romans chapter 15 and verse one says, we who are strong, have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the approaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in those days and former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice 
glorify the God and, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So to finish, we can have encouragement from the wisdom, the harmony and the intricate beauty of God's word that's recorded for us, written by all these different people, but inspired by the Holy Spirit over these hundreds and hundreds of years. And we can have hope and endurance and encouragement because of the beauty, the wisdom, the humility and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God, the Messiah. <laughs>